We are back this morning on the book of Romans, and as you know, we're going to be on this book, really. We're going to spend a lot of time on it through the, throughout this whole year. We're going to go very, very slowly, kind of section by section, sometimes even line by line by line through this book, to really try to do it justice. And today is, again, just like last week, it's going to be a bit foundational. I'm going to tell you this right now. Today's going to be a bit foundational, a little bit of background. Next week is going to be purely the gospel. It's going to just be like a totally gospel-centered message because that's how Paul kind of, he makes the thesis of his sermon, the gospel. That's what we're going to talk about next week is the thesis. And then when we get after that into two weeks from now on, especially for like the next five after that, it's going to get a little bit crazy. Uh, We've been studying it and it's going to be intense and you got to try to be here. If you miss it, try to catch it online because there's going to be like lots of details in the way that Paul builds this that is kind of a bit of a progression that it's, it's, you benefit from catching all of it. So uh, every week, one thing I want us to do, we said this last week when we study Romans, is I want us to say this prayer, just a brief prayer, and ask God to change us through the reading of his word. So I'm going to pray that now. Father God, Lord, let us not view this scripture through the lens which we already view our lives through. Let us not approach Romans full of what we already think we know, God. We want to be changed by your word, Father God. We just don't, we don't want your word to just affirm in us all the things that we already are doing and knowing. Lord, we want to be changed. We want to live better lives. We want to be compelled to change other people, Father God, through this. But Lord, we know, Lord, first that transformation, it needs to take place in us. And Lord, that's, that's why you give us the word of God. It's, it's for transformation. It's to make a difference in our lives so that we can be different in our community, Lord. So please change us through your word. All right, let's, let's get into it. Let's read Romans 1, 7 through 15. It says this, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now these are actually greetings that he gives, uh, he basically gives a Hebrew greeting and a Greek greeting here. Uh, And then he says this, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. So thankful for all of you here. Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. But now watch how it's proclaimed. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. Without ceasing, without ceasing I'm mentioning you. So he says the gospel is being proclaimed in all the world. And he says it's being proclaimed because everywhere I go, I'm going all over the world. And I'm telling people about the church in Rome. Um, whom I serve with the spirit of the gospel of his son, um, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. He really wants to come to Rome. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we actually may be mutually encouraged, we may encourage each other by each other's faith, by yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. So Paul's really like, dude, I really, really want to get to Rome in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Then he says this, he says, I'm under obligation to both Greeks and barbarians. And just a note about barbarians, it's different than probably we think of barbarians. Barbarians in those days were just people who did not speak Greek. Uh, the, the Greek kind of considered themselves to have the elite language of the day, and everything else to them sounded like babbling. And so they gave them this name. They are the barbarians. That's just where it comes from. Um, and so he says, I'm obligated to both, um, the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Now, even though we're going to focus on 16 and 17 next week, I want to read one more kind of into verse 16 
Uh, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. All right, let's pray one more time. Jesus, Father God, we give you all praise and glory, and we thank you so much that, you have, uh, that you've given us this word, Lord, this inspired, breathed-on, holy word. And Father God, we just pray right now, Lord, that... Um, Lord, everything that you would have me to say today, God, let me just say that and let everything else fall to the ground before it ever even comes out of my mouth, Lord. Lord, you know what every person in this room needs to hear, God, and whether I say it or not, Lord, speak it to them. Be in this place today, Father God. Touch lives today, Father God. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So in around, uh, AD, in around AD 49, around the year 49, Claudius Caesar decreed that all Jews were, going to, were to be expelled from Rome. They kicked all of them out. They exported all of the Jews out of Rome. They said, you guys got to leave. You can't, you gotta, you're gone. Claudius then later married uh, a woman named Agrippina, and, her, uh, and he even adopted Agrippina's son, Nero. But in AD 54... His wife, Agrippina, actually poisoned Claudius. She murdered him, and her son Nero then took the role of emperor. This began a time that was known as Neronis Quinquennium, or the five-year period of Nero. And what this was, was it was a time for the most part, not entirely, but for the most part, it was a time of peace. And one where Rome really threw a little bit more peace actually became the strongest and the best that it had been yet uh, as compared to years past. Now as part of the uh, early reign of Nero, as part of this, the Jews were actually allowed to now return and come back to Rome. But when Jewish Christians returned to Rome, they went back to these churches that they had founded and when all the Jews get kicked out, the only thing that's left are the only people that are left are what? They're Gentiles. So when the Jews come back in and they see these churches, they find them in a very different state because, uh, because the Gentiles were the ones that had been running it and they, now they found these churches that were being run by Christians who had not been given the law. They had not been given the Ten Commandments. They did not understand the rituals. They did not have circumcision. They didn't have all of that stuff. So they came back to what they would have considered to be a very disorderly state of a church. And so that caused obvious divisions among this church in Rome. You have the Gentiles, you have the Jews. The Gentiles had been there through the whole time. The Jews come back and they say, what the heck have you done to our church? That's basically what uh, has happened. So um, now, when the five-year period of peace ended... Things got incredibly violent in Rome for Christians. In fact, Nero, uh, he, he basically began decreeing uh, to kill and to persecute Christians like crazy. Um, he, he, Nero would live until 68 AD, and during that time, the, the, the latter part of his life, he just, he just went nuts on Christians. In uh, verse 8, Paul starts talking specifically about Rome and this place that he really wants to visit and this place that he wants to go. And he actually spends seven whole verses on this place. Hey, I really want to get there. And he begins by thanking God. He says, I thank God for the church in Rome. And then he says something very significant. He says, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So he says, the faith of the church in Rome 
is being proclaimed to everybody all over the world. Now, of course, we, we read, if you read very closely at this passage, we honed in on it already. It's very important that um, we know why it was proclaimed. It was mainly proclaimed because Paul was the one proclaiming it. But it's significant that even a divided church, a church that has all these differences, has all this dissension among them, was still faithful to their community. I think in something about that, was so powerful that it spread across the entire world. So it's like, hey, we're not the same. We know that there are differences between us, but you know what? We're still gonna be faithful to the word of God and because of that, something amazing was happening and the word was spreading about what they were doing. So why was it spreading? Why did Paul care so much about the church in Rome? Well, because they were the church in Rome. They were the church in Rome. Let me try, just try my best to help you grasp this, at least just a little bit. Um, especially for those of you who have maybe moved into the city, right? You live in Detroit, you come from the suburbs, you come from somewhere um, rural, like really far away, whatever it might be. Life is totally different somewhere else than it is here, right? And then you go home for Christmas. What does everybody want to hear about? They want to hear about Detroit, right? They want to hear what's going on in Detroit. What's it like to live there? What, you know, do you think you're going to stay there long? Most of them are, and, you know, for a lot of times people go home and they're trying to get convinced, well, you can't stay there for too long. You need to come home back to us. Like that's kind of, when you're moving home, that's what a lot of people say, right? It's a totally different world than the world that they're used to and they can't even imagine what life would be like here. Yet there's this kind of fascination around it. At least this has been my experience, especially if you have kids, and we have kids, right? They have kids, you have kids, you're like, well, it's cool that you're doing that, it's noble and all that you're like putting yourself out there, work, living in Detroit, trying to make the city a better place, but I could never raise my family there. Like, people say that to us often. So whatever it is, right? Now, in addition to that, even like, to give you a little more idea of it, Don and I, we've been part of churches in major cities Uh, basically since we began our ministry. So we're not strangers to that, but there's something very particular about this one, something very unique about this one. It happened with all of them, but even more so here. God has opened a lot of really amazing doors for Don and I, a lot of amazing opportunities to have, to even meet with like uh, leaders from all around, all around the world now, really, different people who are interested in what we're doing. Sometimes they even call us out and have us come and speak at their churches. And none of it has anything to do with Don and I and what we do. Everything to do, it has everything to do with the fact that we're at the church in Detroit. And they're so curious about Detroit. They want to hear about Detroit. They want to hear the work being done in Detroit because in their eyes, their, their eyes are on Detroit and they're curious and they're saying, Man, what's going on there? I want to know. I want to be a part of it somehow. Is it improving? What's it like to raise your family there? They love to hear the stories because their stories are so different from those stories. They're so different from the lives that they lead. But beyond that, especially for people who live uh, in Michigan, everybody knows that the more that Detroit improves and the more that this city becomes what it's going to become and what it should be, the better it's going to be for everybody. For people, the, the, whatever happens here is going to spread. As the city goes, the rest of the state will ultimately go. And the reason that I say all of that is, first of all, just because I want to encourage you guys, here in our church, um, sometimes we have to be reminded that small acts of love done in places where there's not a lot of love, they go a lot further than you maybe realize. You, you, the small things that we do that feel very insignificant, it, it makes a bigger impact than you're feeling in that moment. When we share the gospel here, when we share Jesus with somebody here, when we, when we tangibly do something that demonstrates the gospel here, Sometimes it may seem like 
man, we beat ourselves up because we're convinced that, uh, that this is insignificant. But the reports of that go so far. People get so excited about what's happening. And God really is on the move through all that. Um, and people actually do care about the city. I talked to a lot of pastors and they're like, dude, I was just telling so-and-so like, about your Christmas thing, about the Christmas event you guys did and all those people you reached. How did you guys do that? How did you guys do the backpacks? How, like, I get that a lot. We get that all the time. Um, like, I was just telling so-and-so about how you guys bought the Courage House. How did your little church buy, the cur- how, buy that entire house? How did you, like, we get that stuff all the time. People, I'm going to send a mission trip, right? I believe it was a lot like that in Rome. Paul talked about the church in Rome everywhere that he went because they were the church in Rome and Rome was the hub city really of the entire world. Rome was considered by all measures to be the city. I think I talked about this for like two seconds around Christmas time, but Rome actually had their own system for dating. Like we have, now we have BC and then AD. Like that's how time that, that survived. But Rome actually, during their reign on top, had their own system of dating, AUC, Ab, Urbe, Condita. And what it meant is from the founding of the city. So the idea was that time started when Rome started. Time started when the city started. That's how arrogant they were. That's how confident they were in their systems. Just to put this into a little bit of context for you. During Jesus' day, all right, when Jesus was born, Augustus was Caesar. Uh, a little bit later, Tiberius was Caesar during his time. And then just take, for example, Augustus, right? Everybody thought Augustus is God. Uh, he, he called himself the son of God for all sorts of different reasons uh, we can't get into right now. And, but they printed on these little coins, they printed his face on them, and, and written on it was the letters D-I-V-I-F, which meant son of the divine. So, hi, Caesar, here's a coin with your face on it, son of the divine. Every coin his face, son of the divine. Now, these would have likely been, just to, you, just to give you a little context, similar to the coins that Jesus was handed by the Pharisees in Matthew, uh, I believe it was in Matthew chapter 22, when they ask him, hey, Jesus, should we pay taxes? And he says, well, whose face is on the coin? Caesar's face is on the coin. And he says, well, render to Caesar what's Caesar's. But I think that there's something so much bigger at play here and in moments like this, then we give credit to. Now think about this. Okay, Jesus Christ is God. We all know that. He knew that. And he gets handed this coin that's being distributed all around the world that has somebody else's face on it and says that somebody else is God. And Jesus is not threatened by that. That doesn't bother him at all. We talked about this like two or three years ago at Christmas. He's not threatened by it at all. He's saying, you know what? If Caesar needs to put his face on a coin and make it impossible for people to buy and people to sell things without using the money that declares that he is Lord, if that's what Caesar needs to convince him that Caesar is Lord, then let him do that. So Jesus says, pay taxes. But if you understood what taxes were in that day, you'd understand this is not just Jesus saying, give to Caesar the portion that you owe him. It's much, much, much larger than that. See, The message is not just give Caesar his money. The message is this. Citizens in the kingdom of heaven, you and I, people who believe in Jesus, people who, who understand we are here to bring a new kingdom to this earth, we do not need to rely on worldly systems at all. Because that system was crushing people, it was oppressing people, and it was using military force to get whatever it needed from people. It was a system that left, intentionally left people with nothing so that they would have to rely on them. 
Caesar would literally set up bread distributions in the, in the streets after first ensuring that the people had no bread so that he had to give it to them. He had, in fact, one of the things that the poets would write about Caesar that caught on was Caesar would be a multiplier of bread for all people. That's what people would say about Caesar. He shall be a multiplier of bread for all people. Now, Paul talks an awful lot about encouraging one another, about encouraging the brethren. That's kind of what this good portion of this passage is about. He says, encourage people in the gospel of Jesus Christ, especially for people who on a daily basis have to deal with the oppression of a government like that, who always had its foot on your back, who weighed them down so that they could be the ones that controlled them. I think it's really practical that Paul actually encourages this church so often, hey, find ways that you can encourage each other. Find ways that you can get in surroundings where you can affirm each other, uplift each other, help each other, let each other know, hey, you know what, we're going to go a little further. I got your back. Jesus is on the throne. It's still going to be okay because of Jesus. I think it's very practical that he does that. He says, he says even in this passage, I cannot wait to get to Rome because I want to do that. I want to help you. I want to encourage you. So I can speak into your situation and you can speak into my situation. And I think that there's something we can learn from that when we minister to one another and to the people in Detroit. No, we're not up against what the church in Rome was up against, but even our church in our city, we're going through some enormous changes in this city. It's really, really exciting. A lot of really great things are happening. And for most people, these changes are really, really good. This growth is really good. It's economy coming back to the city, and it's awesome. And I think that we need to kind of want to be a part of that and want to help fuel that. But for every comeback story in this amazing comeback city, there are going to be people who feel like they're getting left behind in it. For every great story, there's always going to be somebody who's it's built on their backs. And if the world is only a better place for a few people. If Detroit is only a better city for a few people, then really all we're doing is creating a different world kind of in the middle of this one that we still don't let anybody else be a part of. We have to figure, and I, and I know that to a degree some of that is unsolvable. We've got to move forward and push, but the church has got to bridge gaps for people. We got to actually be able to go into these, like be, people come into our city and say, hey, you know, we want to help you come along, we want to come alongside of you to have you get where everybody else is going. Two, the church needs to work against that. The church needs to be about reconciling and filling that gap. You know, Israel, for instance, Israel believed that the gospel was for them. They believed that the the covenants were all for them. Uh, But what, what Paul shows through Jesus and what Jesus actually says is, hey, you know what? God is actually redeeming the whole world, not just Israel, um, through Jesus. So when I look at Rome, right, and I look at the rise of an empire, I can't but help but notice that this thing rose on the backs of others who had come before them. But in the end, they just weren't as strong. They didn't have as much strength to fight back. But the gospel says that Jesus is strong in our weakness. And that God's going to fight on behalf of the oppressed and on behalf of the marginalized. And God will indeed have the final word. See, Caesar worked very, very hard. This was a lot of work to make sure that all people relied on him for everything. And he held them down enough that they could not get what they needed on their own. But Jesus comes in with this message, and it's a totally contradictory message that says, Caesar is not our source. God is our source. And you can confidently give to Caesar whatever Caesar thinks is his, right? Because he prints his face on a coin. It has no value in the economy of heaven. None at all. God does not need a coin to take care of you. 
Paul echoes that in 2 Corinthians 9.10. He says, he being God who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food. Like, oh, Caesar's the supplier of bread? No, actually, it's God. Who, he who supplies to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. He says, the same God who gives you those seeds that you plant and this bread in the first place for you to sow is the same God that's going to make sure that a harvest comes from that seed because God did not start a redeeming work in your life just to leave you half finished. So the bigger idea about rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's is not about money, but it's about dependency. What reason would you have to cheat Caesar's systems if it's not your source, right? If you don't give it, they're going to take it from you anyway. If you do give it, God's going to take care of you anyway. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. So really the question is, is it Caesar who takes care of you or is it God? So in the midst of this world in which Caesar was Lord, this group of people, this church in Rome, this, this group of Christians were running around faithfully declaring that Caesar was not Lord and actually Jesus was Lord and they're doing it in the capital city of the entire world and that was causing quite a stir. So much so that the whole world was hearing about how faithful they are because what happened in Rome spreads to the world because Rome literally rules the world. It basically ruled from India uh, all the way over to Spain and all the way up to England. That was basically their territory by the end of, their, of the Roman Empire that they reigned at their peak. And this is why I wanted to read, I say all that to say, this is why I wanted to read verse 16 when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. See, today when we think, oh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel uh, here in America, we tend to translate that as, well, I'm not afraid or ashamed to tell people how they should live. Or I'm not ashamed or afraid or intimidated to, 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 to call out things that I think are unacceptable, behavior that I think is unacceptable, whatever it might be. And then from there, that person may push back against us and they'll say, oh, you're a judgmental person for saying that, you shouldn't say that. Or someone hears that you're a Christian and immediately they start to criticize you and they're like, oh, you know, maybe they categorize you with the people who you know, stand on soapboxes and you use megaphones to judge the world, right? Like that's kind of how people, that's, we, that's kind of how we view it as like, well, I'm not ashamed, I'm okay if they do that, if they judge me that way, right? It might mock me for my decision. But if it makes you feel any better at all about whatever persecution perhaps you feel like you've been, has been happened to you here in the 21st century, let me assure you it was far worse for the Christians in the first century. Peter was crucified upside down because he did not deny the gospel. He was not ashamed of the gospel. Paul was arrested. And Paul was eventually, he was put in prison and he was eventually killed because of the gospel. Even before then, he had previously been arrested. He'd been beaten, he'd been smug, he had to get smuggled out of Berea. He had a mob hunt him down in Acts 17. He was chased out of Thessalonica. Guys, all of the disciples of Jesus Christ, with the exception of John, they were all martyred. They all died martyrs. And John was exiled to rot on an island. It was the Romans who would eventually bring down the temple in 70 AD during that war. It was the epicenter of religion and then they brought the whole thing down. This, this was not somebody to mess with unless you really knew, hey, my God is bigger than this. In those days, if you didn't bow to Caesar, you're in big trouble. Caesar is Lord. 
but the gospel is the message that Caesar is not Lord. It is the message that Caesar and all of his wars and all of his weapons and armies and all the ways that they've controlled things throughout history, through violence and through murder, they will ultimately be brought down by a king who has shown us that it's going to be generosity that is going to win the world. It will not be violence. It will not be hatred. It will not be destruction. God sent his son to die for you because he loved you. God loved the world so much that he gave. He was generous. He was giving of his son. He gave everything on his behalf. So when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, what he's saying is there is nothing that Rome can do to me that will ever silence me from sharing this message with them. The message of Christ, the message of hope, the message that God will meet you right where you are because that message is powerful enough for even Rome, to save even the Roman citizens, to save even Paul like we learned about last week. But the heart of that is so important because Paul just wanted people to know Jesus. There's one part in Romans 9 when he's, Paul's like, listen, if I, have to, if I have to be cursed like forever so that all of you can meet Jesus, I would let that happen because that is how valuable it is to me. He did not care about himself. He didn't, he didn't t- teach people the gospel so he could elevate himself so that he could judge people. That wasn't what he was doing. He always was about others. Watch what he says in verse 11. After he tells this church, he's always praying for them. He says, I long to see you. I really want to get there. I really want to be in Rome because I really want to impart something to you. He has this desire in his heart. He's like, man, I really, really, really want to get to Rome. I really, really want to really love on you guys and talk to you guys. But the fact is, is Rome is a place that he had not been before. This is very significant. Paul had never been to Rome. He makes that very, very clear in this letter. He writes with this deep sense of a desire to go to Rome, to go to this place that he had not been yet, to meet with these people who he had not met. But Paul never gets to Rome. Well, he never gets to Rome free. Paul is arrested. He's taken to Rome and he's put under house arrest. But he never fulfills that dream. He has this dream to go to Rome and to preach this amazing crusade. Uh, And, you know, he wants to like, I'm sure in his mind he's thinking thousands are going to come to Jesus through this moment, but that never happens. The only time Paul gets to preach in Rome, the Acts does tell us that uh, when he's under house arrest, people would go to his house and he would preach to them at his house during house arrest. So that was his extent of preaching in Rome. People had to go to him while he's in chains and he'd have to preach to them. But it wasn't that great plan that he had and that's just the reality guys and you've heard it before but we can make our plans but God's going to guide our steps and God's going to do something in our lives that we may not feel like it's bigger at the time but in the long run it will always be more impact than it would have been on our own and if we let our lives be weighed down by the things that seem like failures now it's very possible that we're going to miss right now what God is doing in our midst and because our situation seems so broken. Guys, he never preached to Rome. But this letter, the letter to the Romans, how many of you guys know it has shaped more of history for the church than any other letter in history, than any other writing has ever written? This, this is uh, Augustine credits Romans to his conversion. Uh, Martin Luther, the part that we're going to read next week, 16 and 17, is kind of the thesis of the book of Romans. Martin Luther says reading that was what caused him and compelled him to go and write the 95 theses and put it on the Gutenberg church uh, in, in Germany. That, that, that's what sparked the Protestant Reformation. So much has come from the book of Romans. 
Paul, on a more personal level, got to preach to all these prison guards um, throughout this entire time, but it's never the way that he saw it happening at the time. It's never the way he intended on it being. A sermon on your, out of your house for a few people, that's important and that's great, but that's probably not what you thought your life was going to amount to. But he had no idea at the time that this letter that he's writing would not only be read by the church in Rome, but it would be read by every single church in the entire world throughout history. He literally just thought he's writing a letter. Writing a letter. And that should give us great hope. That gives me great hope as I write letters. <laughs> like, I need to write more letters. He never gets there except in chains, yet his desire was to go because he wanted to impact the greatest city in the world. But God still used Paul to reach the world in a far, far greater way through the letter of Romans. But he never gets there. He never, ever gets there. And the reason I keep saying this over and over again, he never gets there, he never gets there, he never gets there, is because I'm trying to lay a foundation for you by which we will study the entire book of Romans. And this is one of the hardest conclusions that I had to come to as I'm studying this book. Paul never gets there. Paul never goes there. So it's not like Corinthians, right? Paul goes uh, to the church in Corinth and he sees that uh, the spiritual gifts thing was like, it was a good thing that they had taken too far and it was kind of off the, off the rails. And he was like, hey, this is not healthy what you're doing. He had to address it. He goes to the church in Corinth and he's like, hey, some of the stuff you're doing is so vulgar. Even the pagans won't do those things, right? He comes and he observes these things. And then from that observation, he then writes and gives them something to help them along the way right? But it's not like that with this church. He does not have a personal relationship with the church in Rome. He certainly knew some of what was going on in Rome because whatever happened in Rome, it was the cultural hub of the world, so it would spread everywhere. But the reason that that is so important as we study this book is this. Romans is theologically rich apart from specific circumstances. In fact, this is the most theologically rich of all of his writings, it's the world superpower. He, he's, and, and so in what he's doing is he's writing them thinking, if I can influence them, then we can influence the world, right? But he doesn't have a personal relationship with them. And the, what that means, and, and it's a reality, is essentially Romans is the clearest view that we get of Paul's theology, completely stripped of circumstances that he could speak to directly. He knew about the divisions, he knew about some of the stuff, but ultimately what he's doing is he's saying, you know what, I'm going to take the time to write out how I feel about God, what my theology about God is, what my view about God is, and this is what we get. Now the reason that that matters so much to us today is because the reality is that Paul says some really hard stuff in this book. And that's why I want to take the time to lay this foundation now because as we get into this stuff, a lot of the stuff you're going to be like, well, yeah, but let's look at culture and let's look at context and we always do that. You know that we always will do that. But it's so much more, you, this is not a book that you can just wash away by saying, well, this is what was going on. At least not a lot of it. Because this is literally Paul in, in a room somewhere writing and this guy Tertius is actually the one that's writing it. Paul's like, speaking these words of the book of Romans. We find that out in like, I think, chapter 15 or 16. He's like talking it and he's, he's talking everything that Tertius is writing. Tertius is writing it down. So this is, this is Paul basically speaking his theology in the most concrete way that he can so that this church has like a solid foundation to build off of. These are things that were very, very important to him to get across to this church. And so they need to be important to us too. Now watch this. Verse 15 has always fascinated me. 
He says this, and we're getting ready to, getting ready to wrap this up. Uh, he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I think that this is something that we really have to make note of. I'm eager to preach to you the gospel, people in Rome. See, of course, Paul wants to preach to the city of Rome. He wants to make a difference to the people's lives in the city of Rome. But he's writing to the church in Rome. He's writing to people who are already Christians. He's writing to people who already heard the gospel, who already most likely accepted Jesus. And what he's saying is, I can't wait to get there and share the gospel with you. A couple of verses earlier, he says that when he's there, my hope is that we can mutually encourage one another. I can share the gospel with you. You can share the gospel with me. We can have a conversation about all that God's done in our lives, all the ways that he's transformed us into who we are today because we wouldn't be that if it weren't for Jesus, but the gospel took shape in our lives. I think so often as Christians, we think that the gospel is like 101 and then we move on beyond that and we got to get into like all the other stuff. And, and we, you know this, we, we dig in here we'd want to go deeper we want to show you the bigger picture but one thing we've always tried to be very intentional about with our ministry here is to show you how even in the most detailed deep moments we read about in the bible the gospel is always the center of it it is always the main point because you can never hear that message enough you can never be told enough times that jesus loves you that jesus died for you that Jesus would do it all again if he had to for you. Guys, Christians often fall into legalism because they forget the gospel. They fall into law because they forget the gospel. They fall into anger and they fall into resentment because they forget the gospel. It's a whole lot easier to hold a grudge against another person when you've forgotten the grudge that Jesus did not hold against you. It's a whole lot easier to stay mad at another person for something they did to you if you're not constantly being reminded of what Jesus did for you and what Jesus did on your behalf and of what Jesus forgave you of in this life and what he carried to the cross for you. If you forget the gospel and then you read Romans 2, 1 through 16, which is going to be in a few weeks, you're going to be really upside down. You're going to be really confused. You're going to be, you're going to be a mess. If you forget the gospel and you read Romans 1, 18 through 32, which we're going to read in a couple weeks, you're going to be a mess. You're going to be like, what do I do with this? I don't understand what it's saying. You're going to feel guilt. You're going to feel condemnation. There's a reason that Paul makes the gospel the central thesis to his entire epistle, which is what we're going to really dive into next week. Because it truly is everything. It's the only thing that mattered to Paul, and it's the only thing that matters to us. And what we're going to find next week and beyond as we really dive into the words of this letter and what's being said is that it is impossible for the gospel to be something that God has done for you but then he won't do it for someone who's different from you, who sins differently than you do, who's in a different place in their walk with God than you, who's in a, who lives in a different place than you or comes from a different family than you or a different socioeconomic place than you do or a different race than you are. It's easy to fall into that because if you fall into that again, it allows you to never actually change. It allows us to stay angry 
It's easy to hold a grudge if you believe that God is holding a grudge too. If you believe that God looks at somebody else's sin and thinks that sin is worse than my sin, then of course you're going to look at that person and think that person is worse than I am. And it opens it up to all sorts of destructive things that are not true, they are evil, and they are not the gospel. It's very easy to elevate yourself over somebody else if you believe that God thinks that that person is worse than you because of what they've done. But Paul, he really gets into this in a couple of verses. It's also very easy, church, to miss the gospel because we've come to the conclusion that we think that the arms of grace just don't quite reach us. They're just not quite long enough to reach us for what we've done. And that's what makes the whole thing so amazing is the gospel says it does not matter what you've done. All that matters is what Jesus did. Jesus still loves you enough to die for you. And he did. It doesn't matter what you've done. It matters what Jesus has done. It doesn't matter what you've done. It matters what Jesus has done. It doesn't matter what you've done. Guys, We talked about this last week. Paul was called out of the biggest mess any of us could ever find themselves in. He was persecuting Christians. He approved of murder of Christians. He was an awful dude. And yet, when Jesus found him, you know what Jesus said to him? Listen, Paul, Paul, Jesus calls Paul. He says, you know what, Paul? Why are you persecuting me? And we hear that and we're like, okay, he was persecuting Philip. He was persecuting the church. He's not persecuting God. But no, Paul, Jesus didn't say, Paul, why are you persecuting the church? Paul, why are you persecuting other Christians? He says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? God actually looked at Saul and said, Saul, you are persecuting God. And yet he still got a hold of Saul and he still transformed his life and he called him to reach the nations. Not only the Jews, but also the Gentiles. That is the message, guys. The covenant that God made with his people in the Old Testament. That same covenant that we talked about a few weeks ago. He is now fulfilling in our world through Jesus on behalf of the entire world. And the fact that Paul emphasizes the importance of encouraging each other in the gospel is so significant Because sometimes even Christians need to hear the gospel. Sometimes even Christians need to be reminded, hey, you know what? You're not who you should be. You know what? I'm not who I should be. Jesus loves me anyway. I didn't do life the right way this week. Jesus loves me anyway. So as we close this message, and I know that this is a bit foundational, I know it may feel like we're taking this book pretty slow, and we are. But it's important as we begin this that we breathe because we're going to get into a lot of really heavy things here pretty soon. So it's important that we breathe and we take in the gospel and we take in the love of Christ and we remember where he brought us out of. We remember what he's done in our lives and we begin to encourage one another in the gospel because we're going to get into some stuff here that's going to be like, man, I'm going to need some more encouragement. So we need to learn to encourage each other. If we forget the foundation then the bottom can fall out on the whole thing. You know, you maybe you've come into this place. You don't even know how you got here. Sometimes I come into this place and I'm the one teaching and I don't even know how I got here. But God, what is going on? What is happening? You don't know where you're going. You don't know your right hand from your left, like Nineveh. Listen, guys, it is in that place that Jesus Christ said, you know what? Let me take that confusion from you. Let me take that disappointment. Let me take that uncertainty. Let me take all that heartbreak. Let me take all those aches and all of those pains. 
Let me take the sins that have been weighing on your conscience all week. Let me take that. And here, you take this. Here's my love. Here's some more grace. Take my love that knows no bounds. And soak in it for a while. You know, as we get ready to take communion, which we're going to do in just a second, and we worship together, I want to encourage you. Maybe it's at the altar. Maybe it's in your seats. Maybe it's with your family. Maybe it's with somebody you've never met before. But I want us to start getting intentional about encouraging each other with the gospel. What's God doing in your life? You know, maybe it's after worship. Maybe it's in the halls. Maybe it's at, maybe it's at lunch. What is God doing in your life? Where did God bring you out of and how did, he, how did you come this far? Then we don't know where everybody else has been this week. We don't know what junk people are bringing into when they come into this place. We don't know what we've done. But we know what Jesus has done for us. We know that the same love that's wrapped itself around us in our darkest moment wants to wrap itself around everybody else in their darkest moment. Because that's the gospel. It's love. And it's why we're here.